0: We want to remind our listeners that this program is for informational and educational purposes only and not intended to substitute for professional veterinarian medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The Animal Medical Center does not recommend or endorse any products or services advertised by SiriusXM. Welcome to Ask the Vet with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus. This is the place to talk about your pets and get advice from the top veterinarian from the Animal Medical Center in NYC. Hear from the leading authorities on animals and ask your questions. Now, here's your host, Dr. Ann Hohenhaus
1: everyone and welcome to ask the vet podcast thanks for joining me today i'm your host dr ann hohenhaus i'm a senior veterinarian here at the animal medical center in new york city and also director of pet health information i've got an information packed program for you today as a veterinarian i know how important it is to feed your pets a proper diet to keep them healthy and well and living as long as possible But how to choose that food can be confusing for many pet owners, especially in this cluttered marketplace where there is a new food every day, it seems. So on today's podcast, I'll be talking with Catherine Reguario, a board-certified veterinary nutritionist and manager of scientific communications at Hills Pet Nutrition. I'm really looking forward to this important conversation, and I know you are too. The Schwarzman Animal Medical Center is excited to share our Ask the Vet podcast is now ranked fourth on Feedspot's 45 Top Best Podcasts for 2023. And thanks to our longstanding partnership with SiriusXM, the Ask the Vet podcast can be accessed on all major platforms where you get your podcast. But also if you have the Sirius app, you can access it there. Be sure to like and follow us to keep up with important pet health information from this podcast. And remember that the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center is the only level one veterinary trauma center in New York City and is also the largest not-for-profit animal hospital in the world. If you have a question about your pet's health, just email me and I'll answer your questions on next month's Ask the Vet program. We've got four great questions to answer later on in this program. If you want to email me, I'll give the address now, but you can also, I'll give it later in the show so if you don't have a pen and pencil to copy it down. But you almost don't need to copy it down because the address is Ask the Vet at amcny.org. Again, ask the vet at amcny.org. And now it's time for our Trending Animal of the Month.
0: It's time for the internet's most talked about animal.
1: This trending animal is really two trending animals because they're a pair that can't be separated. Two sweet stray pit bulls named Brenda and Linda were rescued and brought to the Minneapolis Animal Care and Control Shelter. They came about the same time. And almost immediately, the staff noticed that Linda and Brenda were inseparable. The dogs were placed in separate kennels, but next door to each other. And their unbreakable bond proved to be so strong that a cement wall did not step Brenda, who is a very determined girl, from being with her best buddy. When staffers arrived the following morning, they could not believe that the dogs were together in one kennel. Thankfully, the security video captured Brendan's hilarious and endearing maneuver as she scaled the wall between the two kennels and literally fell into Linda's kennel. Following Brendan's escapade, the staff decided it was best and safer to put both dogs together in a larger kennel. One day after the original video clip of high jumping Brendan went viral, the shelter happily announced that Brenda and Linda had been adopted together. For lots of photos and the video clip of Brendan's daring escape into her friend Linda's kennel, just Google Brenda and Linda Pitbulls. And now I am absolutely thrilled to welcome my special guest and friend, Catherine Ruggiero, a board-certified veterinary nutritionist and manager of scientific communications at Hills Pet Nutrition. Welcome to Ask the Vet. Hi, how are you? I'm good, and it's good to see you again. So Dr. Ruggiero is a New York City local type person but she's also a proud Mizzou Tiger. So can you explain to our listeners what it means when I say you're a Mizzou Tiger?
2: Yeah, um, well, the University of Missouri is the Tigers. That's our mascot. And I went to the University of Missouri for both veterinary school and my clinical nutrition residency. So I spent a fair amount of time in Columbia, Missouri, although I still call New York home.
1: And so- you got to veterinary school in Missouri, but what what got you there? Like, why did you want to be a veterinarian? Oh, geez.
2: Um, you know, I think a, a lot of us who have become veterinarians have that dream from, we say, what, age two or something that probably doesn't make sense, to, before we could even remember. Um, and I actually was not one of those. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I really liked science and chemistry, biology, medicine. So that was sort of my, my course of study in undergraduate school. And then of course I've always loved animals, always had pets. Uh, so when I started exploring the medicine path, uh, veterinary medicine really seemed to make a lot of sense. It combined my love of, of science and my love of animals. And so I uh, eventually applied to veterinary school, did some years in between there where I did some some graduate studies and worked in veterinary clinics, uh, but found my way to the University of Missouri for veterinary school.
1: Yeah, I I wanted to be a veterinarian from the time I was little too, and I couldn't really imagine taking care of sick people. Like, I love taking care of sick animals, but I don't know, like when family members are sick, I find it really hard to to try and help take care of them. And I'm not yeah, good at I that. I
2: loved the idea of medicine. And then when I actually started thinking about what it meant to be a doctor for humans, kind of grossed me out. So I said, well, you know what? I love animals um, and I could really combine these two passions. So it's been an amazing journey.
1: So what caused you to leap? just from being a general veterinarian to being a nutrition specialist?
2: Yeah, um, definitely did not see that one coming. You know, things kind of sneak up on you as you're practicing. And I was practicing in a uh, dog and cat practice in upstate New York after veterinary school. And just during my appointments, I found myself gravitating towards those nutrition conversations. It was something that pet owners really wanted to talk about, but something I also really enjoyed learning about and I got to see firsthand how important nutrition is for keeping pets healthy and how invested pet parents are in that particular aspect of care. Um, so I was looking at maybe specializing, narrowing my, my field of focus a little bit. And I knew I would never get bored if I could just focus on pet nutrition full
1: time. So food is so important to my oncology patients. The, here's Here's today's story about food in a pet dog doesn't feel so good the first couple of days after chemo so the owners go to McDonald's and get him hamburgers and then he wants to eat um and then of course he has diarrhea two days later um and and, and that that is to the level at which people whose pets have cancer really worry about food and food intake and cater to their pets and and I find that as an oncologist one of my biggest challenges is food for for pets that don't want to eat because the minute they don't eat for five minutes, the owners are sure they're they're dying, which they're actually probably not. So knowing that level of concern that people have about their pet's food, it, it tells you how important it is. So what kind of tips do you have for our listeners about what they can feed their pets?
2: Yeah, it's a confusing world out there with pet food. And um, it definitely depends if you're dealing with patients like the ones that you see that have cancer and have reasons to potentially have a poor appetite or have owners who are going to be hyper focused on an aspect of their behavior, like their appetite or their food intake. Ultimately, I think I'll always say, you know, talk to your veterinarian. Um, your veterinarian knows your pet and knows you and you can describe your pet in more detail than than I could ever give a blanket statement because really every pet is unique and every pet needs a little bit of something different. Um, Although there are some basic nutrition requirements by species, I mean, every dog and every cat has a different health concern, environment they're living in, different preferences, and maybe has owners with different preferences. So there is a way to marry all of those things together. And generally speaking, a veterinarian is gonna be your best person to do that. But also will say that another kind of tip to keep in mind is that pets aren't people, and they're also not wild animals. So we often really do want to apply our own ideas about nutrition to our pets, and there are some cases where that's totally fine, but often it's not appropriate to feed a pet like we feed ourselves, Um, and also not appropriate to feed them like a wild animal. Dogs and cats are domesticated animals. They've evolved alongside of us. Um, Studies show their divergence from their wild counterparts applies to nutrition as well. So we really want to make sure that we're feeding them appropriately for the species that they are um, and the individual that they are. And that really requires, if you're doing your own kind of research to figure out what to feed, is just check your sources. Um, I know a lot of owners are doing research online, which is fantastic. They're learning all sorts of amazing things about pet health, um, but especially when it comes to pet nutrition really making sure that we're vetting our sources to find reputable, accurate, truthful sources of pet nutrition information is important. Um, There's some great resources out there, which I'm sure we can find a way to to link or reference, but the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, AHA, a lot of the science-based food companies that focus on education, they all have really great information that's often written
1: by veterinary nutritionists. So I think that you mentioned a couple of things that I found interesting in my reading. One is that as dogs have evolved from wolves, dogs they've lost no, they've gained the ability to digest carbohydrates. Their, their their genes have increased so they can digest carbohydrates. And the gene jockeys out there who understand this kind of thing, which is not me, say that it happened as a long time ago in dogs when like thousands of years as we domesticated dogs and brought them into our carbohydrate rich environment which i think is just really fascinating that they diverged from wolves that long ago to be able to digest the carbohydrates that were available to them in the human closer to people than wolves live which i think is really important and then the other thing is that that when Board-certified nutritionists have done studies looking at people who say, I, can, I feed myself, I can feed my dog. You end up with homemade diets that are usually calcium and phosphorus deficient, um, which is their dogs have a very different calcium phosphorus requirement than we do. And so just because you can feed yourself doesn't necessarily mean that you can successfully feed your dog.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, part of what I've done through my residency is formulated homemade diets for dogs and cats. And it's certainly possible to to do that and have it be a complete and balanced diet that provides them with all of the nutrients they need, but it's pretty challenging and really does require a a supplement most of the time. Um, And we could argue that we probably as humans don't do a great job feeding ourselves, right? We're probably all walking around with some deficiencies, Um, but Even if we do a fairly good job, it's our diversity of diet, the number of enriched or fortified foods that we eat, that really helps to make sure that we're meeting our vitamin and mineral requirements. Um, For dogs and cats, that's a lot harder to do home cooking. So fortunately, that's not the only option we have. It's an option, but there are lots of great options on ways to feed your pet. So um, you don't have to figure it out on your own. Sometimes I really wish I had a nutritionist for me just to figure out everything that I need. I try to do the best job I can with the knowledge that I have, but I'm trained in dogs and cats, not people nutrition.
1: Could you feed a cow?
2: I feed a cow. I don't want to feed a cow. I have a little bit of training on how to feed. Cow, but my residency really was more focused on a uh, small animal, on dog, cat, a little bit of exotics. Um, there are some clinical nutritionists who do specialize in large animal, cows and horses and room, small ruminants. So they have a lot more of that expertise than I do. They, take, they took a harder exam than I did. Let's
1: put it that way. Uh, they and the zoo people, Oh God! A very hard exam. Um, if you're a zoo, a board-certified zoo veterinarian, they could ask you about anything. They could ask you about a rhino or an antelope or a snake, and it would all be on the same exam. The the zoo people are incredible.
2: Yes, oh, hats off to them. That is that is a tough specialty.
1: So let's go back to what you actually really know a lot about, and that is when you go to the pet food store, there are shelves and shelves and shelves, and they say things like natural, raw, organic, limited ingredients. What does all that stuff mean, and is it important?
2: Yeah, well, you know, some of those terms do have a pretty strict definition according to to AFCO or to federal regulations. Others don't. So, for example... If you see natural on a bag, really all that means is that there are no synthetic compounds included and that often does not apply to vitamins and minerals that are added. So that has a very clear definition if someone puts natural on there, although not a not probably the definition we all think of when we think of something natural. Um, organic also has some pretty strict definitions based on the USDA's National Organic Program, but a lot of the other descriptors Are simply marketing. That's kind of um, disappointing sometimes to hear that, but they are marketing terminology. Um, And unfortunately, none of them really give you a great idea as far as insight into the quality. There's no indicator of quality with a lot of those. Um, So they're, they're terms that are are used for marketing purposes to kind of draw you in. Um, they may or may not indicate that a food is higher quality than another food that does not have those labels. It's just impossible to know.
1: What about, lim- what does limited ingredient mean? Or does it have a precise definition?
2: Yeah, there's no precise definition that anyone has to adhere to. I mean, I think there's a pretty well understood Uh, Consensus that there are going to be fewer ingredients in that food, but it may refer to one category of ingredients. So limited ingredients in terms of the number of protein or meat sources. It might mean limited ingredients in terms of whole food ingredients and not counting additional vitamins, minerals, um, other supplements that are added. So you could take a limited ingredient food certainly and turn it over and look at the ingredient list. Whether you'll actually see that it has less ingredients or more ingredients, there's really no one regulating that to say either way. I think often people are drawn to the limited ingredient um, idea because it's it's like that simpler, maybe more wholesome, more whole food oriented approach, but those ingredients don't have to be whole food items that are, are in there, they're just limited number of ingredients uh, or maybe a limited species that those ingredients are from. Um, or potentially people think, oh, my dog or cat may have an allergy, I should feed it something with less ingredients on the chance that maybe they're allergic to something. And again, if, if they're not allergic to the specific thing that that food is limited in, um, then it may or may not make a difference.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to read that ingredient label because I had a client who swore that her cat couldn't eat fish. And I said, well, what are you currently feeding? And when I read the label on that product, down in the list, like 10 things from the top, it was fish. And I was like, you're not feeding a fish-free diet. So I'm not really sure that fish is your Pet's problem, and she says, "Well, it says this is like limited ingredient chicken," and I'm like, "Okay, well, yes, there's chicken in it, but there's fish too. So it's if you're worried about allergies and your or your veterinarian recommends a diet that has limited ingredients, you, you really have to read the ingredient label uh, on the food to make sure there's not some fish snuck in or some lamb or something."
2: Absolutely. And and it's rather challenging from a manufacturing standpoint to make a truly limited ingredient food. So often the ones for pets with allergies are going to be located on the therapeutic side of pet food. So the type that your veterinarian has to to write an authorization for, give you a a recommendation for uh, in order to purchase it or repurchase it at the veterinary clinic because it's actually really hard to make uh, a limited ingredient food complete and balanced. And it's also really hard to guarantee that it's limited in ingredients. So that same cat, if it were allergic to fish, even if there wasn't fish on the label of that food, if it was an over-the-counter food, there's really no promise being made there that there's not going to be some degree of contamination from from fish, just because that's how manufacturing often works. Uh, Food with fish may have been made on that same line, you know, earlier in the day. Um, So it doesn't have any recognizable fish flavor. And most, you know, pets wouldn't recognize that there's fish in there. But for a pet that's allergic, it may be just enough fish to set off their allergies. So we don't have any of those great labelings of, you know, no peanuts, not manufactured in a facility that manufactures peanuts, that sort of, of labeling that we have on the human side for allergies. We don't have that on the pet side. Um, So we really have to go to the therapeutic foods that are specifically designed and then manufactured that way in order to guarantee we're not getting that cross-contamination.
1: I, I got to go to a pet food manufacturing plant about a year ago. So I've been a veterinarian for like a really long time and I'd never seen how pet food was made. It was, I mean, parts of it were stunning. I mean, the the place was immaculate, like cleaner than my kitchen, and but the food came in in huge, gigantic cubes of food, and we're not, we're talking like six by six feet cubes of food that then gets chopped up and processed and made into. Um, this was a dry food manufacturing plant and, and it was incredible and then that every bag of food got some sort of x-ray thing done, and periodically you'd hear thud and the thud would be a bag of food that got rejected and got pushed off off the line and not you know not then further packaged up into a pallet to go to you know petco or someplace like that so it was um. It, it was incredible. Um, I mean, we America has a lot of pets. We need to make a lot of pet food. But that was really um, an eye opener for me.
2: Yeah, it's quite impressive to visit larger manufacturing facilities like that. And especially, you know, those companies that do put quality control very high up on their list. Um, they do a lot of testing and will reject for very little reason, reject a bag of food, just to make sure that, you know, the dogs and cats out there are going to get the highest quality, safest
1: food that they can get. And then the other thing that this, um, plant did was they saved like some of all the food they made. And if there was any concern in the future, they could go to their, I don't know, their warehouse, their storage facility and say, okay, here's bag number 2000. Let's check it and be sure it, was or wasn't okay. Um, so the safeguards in these large companies are um, quite amazing to see in operation.
2: Yes, and that's a good reminder. I'll get on my pedestal that I love to get on to, to save your bags and store your pet food in its original container because if there ever is a problem, and then you can call up that lot number right on the packaging um, and and let your veterinarian know, let the company know because. Um, a lot of the, the good companies out there will keep kind of a, a library of samples of previous foods just to make sure if there ever was a concern that they can go back and, and test it and make sure that, you know, whatever could be a concern is handled in the appropriate way. And if that, it wasn't that the food that was a concern, then it's one less thing you have to worry about as a veterinarian or as a pet owner that, okay, well,
1: it wasn't the food. Let's see what else it could be. But and And so- here's my, I have kittens right now. So here's in my office and so here's my little jar of food for the kittens, but the bag is at home. I, I don't want to carry like 10 pounds of kitten food into, you know, for their lunch. So they have a little jar here that I refill, but they are, but the bag is at home. So I would have the lot number and kittens are not likely to bust into the cabinet, but if you've got a dog that is going to help themselves and you need one of those big Tupperware things from the container store, then you need to slip the whole bag in there or rip the lot number out and throw it in with the food so that if there's an issue, you've got that lot number saved.
2: For yeah. yeah that's what I do. I've do. i got a big bin two two very sneaky dogs and a big bin that the bag just sits inside of that bin. Um, and it works quite well.
1: Yes, because a dog, there are dogs out there that would eat 50 pounds of dog food if they were given the opportunity. I don't understand it, but. Um, I guess for them, it's Thanksgiving every day. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's talk now about, which you kind of hinted at it, pet food regulations. So a lot of times, like when someone says to me, well, what's important in food? I say it needs to be AFCO approved. So, well, who is AFCO? What is AFCO? What does it stand for?
2: Yeah. So AFCO is the Association of American Feed Control Officials. And really their role is to provide model laws and regulations for individual states to adopt. Um, So they don't actually have any direct regulatory authority in and of themselves. That's really up to the individual states, Um, but each state has their own set of laws and regulations and license requirements. And about two thirds of them probably in that range have adopted all of those AFCO recommendations. So AFCO recommendations, Um, give advice on things like ingredient labeling and um, other labeling requirements that then the FDA will regulate. They also give um, guidance on how to substantiate that a food is complete and balanced and appropriate for that that species and that life stage, which is often what we talk about as veterinarians when we say, you know, AFCO approved or check the AFCO statement. It's that nutritional adequacy statement that says, yes, this food has been shown to be a complete and balanced formula that can be fed to, you know, a dog that is of this age long-term. And that's really what you want to see in the pet food that you're feeding from day to day. Um, they have, AFCO has actually a really great website that they've they've redone, and it's pretty cool. Um, so I definitely recommend people check it out if, if they have questions about pet food regulation. Ultimately, the, the true oversight is going to come at the federal level from the FDA and the FDA's you know, CVM branch that does all of their veterinary control. They're the ones who actually have uh, the responsibility of enforcing those laws created by the states. They are important in looking at uh, labeling for any feed that is uh, part of interstate commerce. And they're also there to kind of provide some support to the state agencies. But it's one of the things that makes pet food uh, regulation so challenging is every state kind of has its own law. For the most part, everybody has adopted parts of AFCO, and some states have fully adopted kind of all of the AFCO recommendations. But it means that the regulation portion of things really is up to the individual state. So if you ever had a concern about a food, you can report it to the FDA or you can report it to your state and then the state feed control official, kind of investigates further and takes it from there. But AFCO has provided some really fantastic guidelines that, again, most of the, the pet foods out there, and certainly on a larger scale, the industry folks in the United States take pretty seriously.
1: So the, but states don't regulate people food.
2: <laughs> yeah. So that it falls, falls under different branches for people. Um, and the FDA has a lot more oversight along with the USDA, EPA, Um, Those organizations have only minor contributions in in pet food only if they're traveling over states. So it's very different. If you're not selling pet food across state lines, then your rules really only apply to you in in your individual state.
1: Are there really that niche pet food companies that would only sell pet food in a particular state? There
2: are not many. and um, But these, again, these are rules that are not... Maybe heavily enforced uh, by certain states, and and if you're small enough, you definitely can find some interesting things on the market that kind of sneak by. Um, that's why it's so important. I rely on veterinarians and pet owners to to kind of alert us when there's something happening that probably shouldn't be happening, something that looks a little suspicious that's on the market, because it happens from time to time. As soon as it gets, you know, reported, that often gets taken off the off the shelves. Um, so for the most part, you know, if you're playing in the the national arena uh, as a pet food manufacturer, you're going to follow the AFCO guidelines, but then also need to make sure that you're meeting every state's requirement as well. Um, So it's a complicated thing. I'm really grateful that there's an entire group of people where I work that take care of that part of things. And I can can rely on my regulatory experts um, to figure out what needs to be, be done on the labeling side. And as far as any food that's sold, you know, across the States and Hills also sells food internationally. So it gets even more complicated, but fortunately I do not have to worry a lot about that. There are a lot of, of great uh, veterinarians and veterinary nutritionists involved
1: in that part of the business. So I would say that obesity is probably our major nutritional disease, although lots of people think that nutritional disease is you don't get enough of something. Obesity is the opposite, and you're getting too much of something, which is calories. Um, So what can pet families do to keep their dog or cat at the right weight? Oh, gosh. Well, if I
2: had the perfect answer, we probably wouldn't have this problem. But I have a few ideas. Um, I I actually appreciate that you call out obesity as a disease because it absolutely is. It's a form of malnutrition, even though we think of, as you said, malnutrition. we Think of that emaciated, starved dog. Um, but certainly obesity is a form of malnutrition as well. It's just in the opposite direction. Um. And it is very, very common in our, our dog and cat population. I think really the first step is just recognizing what your pet's ideal body weight should be. Um, and are they there now? That's, that sounds like a simple question to answer, but when we look around so many of the animals that we see, you know, at the dog parks, walking around on the streets, even on TV, even in dog shows, those dogs are actually overweight or sometimes even obese. So we don't have great models to look at in our heads to say, yes, I, you know, my dog is at a good weight. Fortunately, there have been some validated scales developed, some, some ways to assess your dog's body condition. Veterinarians and veterinary staff are trained on this, you know, quite well, Um, but it's also something that you can train yourself to do and kind of feel over. It's the it's a, a palpation that feels like a really nice pet for your dog, but you can feel over your dog or your cat, kind of feel certain landmarks on their body to determine, is there too much fat covering here? Is this uh, indication that they are over their ideal weight? And then of course you can use your veterinarian, you know, ask your veterinarian, is, is he at a good weight? And is this the ideal weight for, for my pet right now at its, in its life stage? If the answer's yes, then it's you know kind of a keep doing what you're doing situation because you're probably doing a fairly good job of, of controlling calories and feeding inappropriate food. If the answer is no, and, and your pet is overweight or obese, you're with the majority. I mean, you're not alone. Um, but the good news is that even though obesity is a disease, it's one that we can treat, cure, prevent. Um, more so than any other disease. So it is something that's fixable. It is something that you can address. And there are a ton of fantastic food options out there that are specially designed to help pets feel fuller after they eat, help them consume fewer calories, even improve their metabolism. So being an obese or overweight pet is not you know, the the saddest thing where you're going to be on a diet for the rest of your life. I know I always think of these super restrictive diets of bland foods where you can't have any any treats or you can't treat yourself. I mean, that's kind of a miserable existence for people. So we try not to do that for our pets either. Um, but there are ways to feed feed pets as part of a good weight management plan where they can have treats. They can have really tasty food, but it can be developed in conjunction either with your veterinarian or closely you know, looking at at the type of food that you're feeding to make sure that you're maintaining a good weight for your dog or cat because it is it's so important. It's something we have control over.
1: Well, I think that's a great way to end this conversation, which I think we could talk the whole podcast about what you should feed your pet. I want to give my thanks to Dr. Catherine Ruggiero for joining me today on Ask a Vet, and I'm looking forward to seeing her at a nutrition meeting coming up in Lisbon in September. Yes, yeah, see you there. Got a question about your pet's health? Then send your questions to me at askthevet at amcny.org. And I'll respond to your question on next month's Ask the Vet podcast. It's time for a short break, but stay tuned because I've got interesting animal news when we return.
0: We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Vet podcast it's time for the Animal News of the Month.
0: It's time for Animal Headlines, the biggest animal news from across the world.
1: Our first story today is a scuba diver who's forged an unlikely bond with a smallmouth bass, that's a fish. And this pair meet up every summer between the waves in the same Wisconsin lake for their annual reunion. This this is just a- absolutely blows my mind. Back in 2021, Rex Columbra was on a dive and noticed a particular fish was hanging out to him closer than all the rest of the fish for practically his entire dive. The fish was even to trying to chase away other fish. Two weeks later, Rex returned to the same dive spot and soon enough, the bass appeared again and approached him. Rex was convinced it was the same fish because the fish has a scar on his face. And that scar is probably because he got caught and then was released and the hook left a scar in his face. The two were bonded and Rex decided to name the fish Elvis. Now, I'm not really sure why. I don't know, somehow a fish just doesn't seem like it should be Elvis to me, but um okay so during his many dives Rex taught out Elvis a special call kind of a grunting sound so that when Rex made the grunt Elvis would respond and the crawfish that Rex feeds Elvis helped too so now the pair see each other every year when Rex travels back to the lake where Elvis lives if you want to see photos of rex and elvis and an amazing video just google elvis the bass and rex the scuba diver our second story this month is Flossie, who is a beautiful get this 27 year old the british tortoise shell cat living in england this is the oldest living cat in the world according to the guinness book of world records She's roughly 120 human years old and has lived in four different homes. Her current owner, Vicki Green, says that Flossie is still affectionate and playful and in good health despite being uh, hearing compromised and not having the best vision. Flossie will turn 28 in December of 2023. So to see the oldest cat in the world, just Google Flossie the cat for some amazing photos. And our third story is about yoga which is not just for people at the houston zoo elephants participate in a slow motion stretching exercise much like yoga for between 30 seconds and five minutes a day it strengthens various muscle groups in the elephants while stimulating their brains and helps to keep them motivated to move around because they get special treats like cantaloupe, raisins, whole wheat bread and bananas. Now, this I can't rectify this visual in my mind. How in the world do you feed something the size of a raisin to something the size of an elephant? Do they just vacuum them up with their trunk? I mean, how I got to work on this. Feeding elephants raisins. Maybe there's a maybe there's a YouTube video on that. So, if you want to see the elephants doing yoga, um, you would want to look up Tess, the 40-year-old elephant and mother of four standing on her head because she's doing elephant yoga at the Houston Zoo. Doing elephant yoga helps the zookeepers get a full look at various parts of the elephant's bodies from their trunk to their tail. And it also checks on range of motion. And then the keepers call in the veterinarians if something seems off during yoga. According to Kristen Windle, the elephant supervisor at the Houston Zoo, they're cultivating strong, positive relationships with the elephants so that they can give them the best health care and ensure their well-being. So don't forget to look up Tess, the 40-year-old elephant doing yoga at the Houston Zoo. Now let's go to questions from
0: our listeners. Our first question is from Alicia. She asks, Dear Dr. Ann." My husky has issues with his gums and a tooth. Plus he has arthritis. He's on antibiotics and anti-inflammatory medication. How do I know if he's in pain and suffering? He still has an appetite and enjoys his two walks a day. I cannot afford the dental procedure and don't have the heart to put him down. If I knew he was suffering, then I would. So is there a way to tell if he is in pain and suffering? Please help.
1: So I think the first thing to do is to ask your veterinarian whether or not he thinks he or she thinks that your husky is in pain. They're going to have a good idea about that. The second thing is veterinarians use two different pain scores for dogs. One is called the Glasgow, like in Scotland, pain score. And one pain score is from Colorado State University's College of Veterinary Medicine. You might want to just look these up on the Internet and go through the checklists and see if they give an indication that your dog is painful. And finally, if it's one or two teeth that are causing the problem, ask your veterinarian if maybe they could just address the painful teeth and knowing that you can't do afford the whole dental. And then finally, there are two programs that I know about that help people finance veterinary care for their pets when they are financially not able to. One is called Care Credit. And the other is called Wells Fargo, like in the bank, Wells Fargo Veterinary Care. And these programs have a credit card with no interest for a period of time. And so you can get your pet fixed and then you pay the money back. And if you do it within this set period of time, you don't pay interest. And if you have to take longer to pay it off, then of course you pay interest. So I think there's some things that our listener can do here. And I'm going to wish her best of luck with her husky. Our next question is from Noreen about her jealous Shih Tzu.
0: My four-year-old Shih Tzu, Lacey, gets jealous when my husband and I are affectionate with each other. For example, when I kiss my husband, Lacey tries to kiss him right after. Please help.
1: Well this I interpret this as Lacey's asking for attention, so our our listener doesn't say if the husband is new and Lacey's been displaced, um, is there a new baby in the household, and that's taking away the attention from the dog, But I think what Lacey's asking is attention. And so I would make sure that Lacey gets plenty of attention, plenty of walking, plenty of ball playing, and lots of brushing, because Ashutsus get tangles in their hair so easily. And I bet that if our listener pays more attention to Lacey, that she won't be so um, overprotective of the husband. Good luck with Lacey, and um, I'm glad Lacey's well, and that this is her only problem. Our third question is about a dog with immune-mediated
0: neutropenia. The question is, how long should a dog with immune-mediated neutropenia be treated with prednisone? If their neutrophil counts return to normal after two months of treatment, I would be so grateful to get a response to this question.
1: So I think I first better explain to our audience what immune-mediated neutropenia is. So neutropenia means a low level of infection fighting white blood cells. And immune means that the body's defense system is attacking those white blood cells. And that's abnormal. The body should know that those white blood cells need to be there. Then when a dog um, has immune-mediated neutropenia, their white count gets low, they can't fight off an infection, they get a fever and they don't feel well, And then you go to the veterinarian and they do a blood count and discover this. So the treatment is to give prednisone to tamp down this exuberant immune response. I would say that there is no recommended length of treatment. Immune-mediated neutropenia is not very common. And so there aren't hundreds of dogs out there for us to study to make a, a Good solid evidence-based recommendation. So I would say you need to go based on your veterinarian's recommendation and monitoring um, as to when, if ever, to stop the steroids, because some dogs, as soon as you stop the steroids, the white blood cell count goes right back down again. So this this is potentially a lifelong condition and will require um, ongoing monitoring. And your veterinarian is the best person to answer how long your dog should be treated. Best of luck, and I hope you get lots of white blood cells when the prednisone is given. And our last question is about a nine-year-old mixed breed dog.
0: Our female dog has renal failure. We don't think our dog will make it until next month, but wanted to ask about renal failure in general. The ultrasound and blood tests show that my dog has renal failure, but her symptoms do not show it. Our vet put the dog on liquids and her numbers look better. So we continued this liquid therapy all last week. The vet was beginning to think the dog was toxic. Over the weekend, her numbers went back up again. So we started on liquids, hoping her numbers would go down. We even took her to an ER clinic. Unfortunately, there were no signs of improvement. She's now home with us. Do you think we or our vet missed something? Would appreciate your advice.
1: So this owner is clearly very concerned about her dog. and renal failure tends to be a bit unpredictable. Sometimes it gets bad really fast. And other times the abnormalities in the kidney tests um, correct themselves and the dog is okay. I think the most important thing I hear in this question is that, that the question asker says, the dog has high numbers, but the dog looks pretty good. And so One of the things that I always have to remind myself is that I take care of dogs, I don't take care of numbers on blood tests. And so numbers guide me but if the dog is feeling well, it may be that This is just a change in the kidney function that's not going to adversely affect the dog. But my thought is that because this owner is very concerned, it seems to me that maybe she wants to seek the opinion of a board-certified small animal internal medicine specialist. And there's a website that would help this uh, pet owner or any pet owner looking for a board-certified specialist near them. And so the website is vet. Specialistsoneword.com, one word, dot com. And on that website, you put in your zip code, your CD, and it will tell you how to find uh, a lot of different specialists. And this question asker would want to put in small animal internal medicine. Those are the kind of people that can help to sort out why the dog has kidney failure and the best treatment for it. So, this is the sickest dog on our list today. So, we hope the nine year old mixed breed is doing better and let us know how the dog is after that. And then we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll have news from the Uzgan Institute.
0: We're back with Dr. Ann Hohenhaus on Ask the Vet.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Ask the Vet podcast. Now it's time for news from the Schwarzman Animal Medical Center. We just released our 2022 year of comprehensive care report. And I'd like to share some of the information in that report. In 2022, as the only level one veterinary trauma center in New York City, our emergency and critical care veterinarians treated 20,000 patient visits. In total, there were 54,000 patient visits treated by AMC's 20 specialists and services. AMC currently has 133 veterinarians and 43 of those veterinarians are board certified specialists. And thank goodness for this. The hospital has hit the halfway mark. We're in the downhill trend of transforming and expanding the hospital by a comprehensive renovation project. And for any of you that have been here lately, you know how disruptive it's been. But I am 100% sure it's going to be worth it in the end. Um, But right now, our parking lot is our new reception area, and there are all kinds of barriers and pathways and stickers on the floor so that you don't happen to wander into a construction zone a couple of other really fun facts from our year of comprehensive care the largest animal that we treated was a 211 pound english mastiff named phoebe the smallest animal was a four gram snake named hilda Now, how big is four grams? Because most of the time, you guys don't think about animals in grams. You think of them in pounds and ounces. So one raisin weighs one gram. So this means that this snake weighed as much as four raisins, which I don't think if you put four raisins in your hand, you'd even know that they were there. They don't weigh a single thing. Now, this is my all-time most favorite pearl from the year of comprehensive care, The oldest animal treated was not one, but two 81-year-old turtles named Flash and Michael. 81-year-old turtles. I bet they've had more than one family because, or somebody got a turtle when they were born. I don't know, but but 81-year-old turtles is just fabulous. The top names for dog girls were uh, a lot of um, TV influence, Bella luna and then we've got lola chloe and lucy and then the top male dog names max charlie rocky milo and teddy i'm not sure those are not like tv show names so i don't really know where those came from top female cat names oops we've got luna again and um then we've got lucy kitty very clever name for a cat bella one more time and Cleo, another ever popular cat name. Male cats, almost a rerun of dog names Charlie, Max, Milo, Oliver, and Leo. And when you look at the exotic patients we saw, none of them very specific to any species Coco, Oreo, Charlie, Max, and Baby. To read the whole year of comprehensive care report, just go to AMC's website and put year of comprehensive care into the search bar, and you will get that. So I have a question for all our listeners. Who would care for your pet if something happened to you? An unexpected illness, an accident, or worse? In these situations, pets are all too often overlooked. And to make sure that this doesn't happen to your pet, it is critical that you have a written pet plan in place. So the next U-Stan Institute pet health event, uh, my client, friend, and attorney, Deborah Hamilton, whose law practice is committed to animal issues, will discuss what pet parents need to do right now to ensure their pet will be cared for no matter what the future holds. The event is Wednesday, July 12th at 6 p.m. Just go to AMC's events page and register so that we can send you the Zoom link. Everybody's welcome to attend and learn how to plan in ahead for your pet. So I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Catherine Ruggiero, for joining me today and send out a big thank you to everyone who's downloaded the Ask the Vet podcast. We really appreciate you making us number four on the list. Remember, email me if you have a question. I'll answer it next month. The email, askthevet at amcny.org. Check us out on social media, Facebook, it's The Animal Medical Center, Twitter, and Instagram, AMCNY. And I hope you'll join me next month for another Ask the Vet podcast. Thanks, everyone, and stay cool.